0: Should Christians support gay adoption? What does the Bible say about government? And what's the future of our radically polarized culture? My name is Preston Sprinkle, and you're listening to Theology of the Wrong. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology Neurah. I'm going to do something today that I haven't done in a while. I'm going to answer a bunch of your questions, uh, just in case you don't know. Um, This podcast began as uh, kind of a question and answer podcast. So for most of the life of Theology Neurah, I would uh, receive a bunch of questions from my listeners, and I would do my best to respond to those questions. Now, over the past, I would say, six months or so, I've been focusing a lot more on um, interviewing various thinkers and leaders and people around the country uh, that I would love to get to know more. And so I've been doing a lot more interviews lately, but I still – I don't want to just leave behind the whole Q&A or Q&R aspect of the show. Q&R meaning question and response because I can't guarantee that I'm going to answer every question with a perfectly um, neat, nice – answer. (laughs) I don't actually like the phrase question and answer. Just, yeah, can't guarantee I'm going to actually answer your question, but I will respond to as many as I can. So I don't want to leave that behind. I want to keep answering your questions. But right now, man, I'm really backed up, really backed up. And it has nothing to do with my uh, internal organs. It has everything to do with uh, my inbox and all the questions that have been passed on to me. So I've got a fistful, a fistful of not dollars, but questions in front of me. And I'm going to do my best to respond to um, at least some of these on the show today. So if you want to support the show, if you're a new listener, old listener, um, or a first-time listener and you find this show to be helpful and you want to support the show, then you can go to patreon.com forward slash the and support the show for as little as five bucks a month. And you might notice if you've been listening to the show that uh, there is a bunch of, I guess what I'm supposed to call premium content, premium content that's behind a paywall. Uh, that you get access to when you support the show. So for as little as five bucks a month, you can unlock all kinds of uh, secret episodes that I've recorded over the last couple of years. Um, and uh, yeah, we we discuss all kinds of really interesting questions on those Patreon-only shows. So again, patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. You can support the show, which is awesome. And uh, you can support the work that Theology in the Raw is doing. <laughs> I guess that's a way of saying the work that I'm doing. Um, but you also get stuff in return. So please consider that. If you enjoy the show, if you've been helped by it, the, uh, patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. All right, let's jump into some of these questions. I recently read Living in a Gray World and appreciated your application of biblical truth and grace. I work with teens and youth and was recently asked the question should a gay couple be allowed to adopt? We had a good discussion, but I would appreciate some biblical guidance in answering this question. Can you please provide some information on this topic? Oh, my goodness! You talk about a volatile issue—one um, that is volatile inside the church, one that is debated outside the church. So, I got a bunch of thoughts on this, and 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 I've, um, I've actually thought, yeah, pretty extensively about this, uh, especially with. I've got friends um, who who work for adoption agencies, Christian adoption agencies, and I've worked with Christian adoption agencies to help them think through this question. So I have thought through it, and even though I've thought through it on various levels, um, I, I don't – man, this this is a really tough question. So I don't think I'm going to pull some magic rabbit, rabbit-ish answer out of my hat. Uh, but I will help you work through this question. First of all, we need to ask, we need to know. I need to know from you, really. I mean, are you asking uh, the question should the church like support uh, adoption from a you know by a same sex couple in the church? Like, is this something the church should support for its own members? Well, then I would need to know what's the church's belief about same sex relationships as a whole. So. If the church doesn't support same-sex marriage in the church, then, of course, the church wouldn't support uh, same-sex adoption within its own kind of community. So if you had a same-sex couple attending a church and you didn't believe in same-sex marriage as a church, then I think it would be hard for you to support adoption uh, into a kind of relationship that you don't even agree with in the first place, okay? Okay. Um, but I think you're asking more in so, in society. But these are kind of two two kind of different things. Like for me to think through the morality of our society now, we're now we're kind of blending church and state. It's kind of like, do I think, um, do I think America should build a wall on the southern border? <laughs> do, do I want to go here? Do I want to go there? Yes, I'm going to go there. Well, if you ask me, I'm like. Well, I don't know. Do you want me to put on my kind of political citizen hat or do you want to just put on my Christian hat? Because my Christian hat says, let's just let as many people flood this country as possible so they can share Jesus with them. You know, like I I don't I will will destroy the economy. No, it'll help the economy. I, I don't really care. I just want people to not just meet Jesus, but be able to experience the love of Christ um, by Christians. And if people are in need, then let's help those people in need. If people are our enemies, then let's love our enemies. So I, I from a Christian perspective, it's kind of like I shrug my shoulders and say, build the wall, don't build the wall. I, I don't know. Like I just, um, I, if you build the wall, I'm going to jump over the wall and try to share Jesus with those people on the other side of the wall. So either, you know, no wall makes it easier on us. <laughs> Let them come to us rather than us having to, you know, buy plane tickets and you know bring our bottled water and hand sanitizer and you know <laughs> um you know go and embody the love of christ to them so but as a as a political citizen i could see logic in having a wall having borders around a country and being concerned about the economy and and the well-being of this nation and we can go back and forth about whether a wall will help that or hinder that or whatever again this isn't a wall question but um so you but you see like sometimes we have to think, respond to questions like this from the perspective of a, a, just a citizen, like what's good for society. Um, and in other ways we, we respond like, well, no, wait a minute, what, what is, what does this mean for the church in particular? So, um, let me give you four facts and these are facts. These aren't arguments. These are just, this is just what the, data reveals. Okay, let me give you four facts that are relevant to this question. Number one, kids fare best when raised by their biological mother and father. That is one of the most indisputed facts among sociologists all across the political or religious spectrum. Kids are raised best. They fare well. They have uh, less depression, less anxiety, higher you know, uh, levels of happiness and achievement in school and so on and so forth when they are raised by their biological mother and father. Now, that does not mean, please hear me, we're talking about generalities here. That does not mean every single biological mother and father are great. Some of them are horrible, okay? Some of them are physically or sexually abusive to their kids, okay? So just having a, I'm not saying like in the particulars, I'm saying generally speaking, if you just lay it all out, if you lay out the generalities, Kids fare best when raised by their biological mother and father. Number two, second fact, adoption is a concession to an imperfect situation. Adoption isn't ideal. Um, it's a concession to an imperfect situation. The, the best situation is raised by your biolo- biological mother and father. So when we say, okay, what about kids that don't have one or, you know, that are in foster care? Now, now we're dealing with... Um, A situation that is less than perfect. So now we have to meet that less than perfect situation, not with perfect scenarios, but with the best of what we have to work with. Okay. Adoption is a concession to an imperfect situation. Number three, kids do better in a home rather than in the system. Okay. So um, again, generally speaking, not that every single home that every single adopted kid has gone to is better than the system. There are some exceptions to this rule, but by far kids generally do better in a home rather than a system. When kids age out of the system, statistically they have much higher rates of um depression, addiction, um uh, crim- criminal activity, um and many other things, suicide ideation and so on. So a home is better than no home is what the stats show. Number 4, there are more kids in the system than there are families – or let me just say heterosexual families that are willing to adopt. There are more kids in the system than there are heterosexual families who are willing to adopt. So that's what we have to work with. And so I maybe that helps you to answer this question, should Christians support or how should we think about same-sex couples adopting kids? Um, I think that those four facts, in a sense, kind of add more complexity to this already complex moral question. So the, I mean, here, here, so to kind of summarize or, or you know, take these four facts a step further, we can conclude, or I guess the question is, is it better for kids to stay in the system rather than being adopted by a gay couple? And before you answer that, you need to ask, what do you mean by better? Okay? Because sometimes these surveys, and you know, you can look at sociological surveys that say, oh, absolutely, it's better to be adopted by a gay couple. But these surveys, these sociological studies, don't really consider like religious values. So as a Christian, um, one of your values might be that uh, marriage is between a man and a woman or it might be certain religious values that you would hope that you know um that, uh, a kid who is adopted would be um exposed to and maybe um well certainly with the idea that marriage is between a man and a woman that value probably would not be <laughs> adhered to or promoted in the household of a gay couple however um don't think that just because it's a gay couple that it's they're not going to be exposed to religious values or just that you know you got to get out of your mind this idea that all heterosexual couples are going to be wonderful and filled with you know um advent calendars and easter sunday services and and but if they go to a gay couple then they they're, they're going to be in an anti-religious home that's just not simply true they could go, what if they would you rather have the the child go to a atheistic harsh Uh, really kind of unloving heterosexual couple versus if your options were that versus a religious kind, loving gay couple, like which one would you want them to go to? If if those were the two options. Now you may push back and say, well, that's not the two options. Well, maybe, maybe not. But again, um, we have more kids that need to be adopted rather than uh, versus heterosexual couples. um, If you let, so would you let the child age out of the system, which is statistically going to be, you know, generally speaking, really not good for the kid, uh, rather than, would you let, or would you say, I would still rather have that happen rather than letting them uh, be adopted by a gay couple, even if you don't believe in same-sex marriage. Um, What if the Christian adoption agency refuses to allow gay couples to adopt and is therefore shut down as a result? And now you have more secular adoption agencies stepping in and handling the adoption of kids would you rather have a let's just say a christian adoption agency concede to this point saying hey we're living in we're living in babylon we're living in a secular society so we're going to lend let you know gay couples adopt kids um if we don't then we will be shut down which is happening um and therefore, we will lose all influence. Do we want to concede some uh, of our values um, so that we can maintain an influence in, in society? Or do we just say, no, we hold our ground and get shut down as a result? So I don't I don't know about you, but I don't think there's an easy response to, to any of these questions. Um, especially when you consider that aging out of the system is always worse or is uh, on a general level worse than... Going to a home, so I do think again that uh, well, I do know factually that kids fare better when raised by their biological mother and father. I do think there's evidence that they do better when raised by even a non biological mother and father. I do think kids were designed by your creator to be raised by two pe- two different people of d- two people of different sexes. And uh, yeah, I mean that's and and there's been studies. That have gone back and forth on that. Some say no, it doesn't matter. Some say yes, it matters a lot. And usually, both studies are driven by a certain agenda. So I kind of, yeah, I, th- I think we have to kind of punt to just our theological beliefs here. If we believe that God created the family unit uh, as a male and female raising a child, if that is the primary design that a biological mother and father would raise their child, then. Um, in an adoption situation, I think we could, we are on good theological grounds, and, and I would say sociological grounds, but again, there's studies on both sides of this. Um, We're on good grounds to say that um, in the case of adoption, sex difference still should be the priority. Um, and, and I would say that, you know, I'm not intrinsically against a, a single mom or single dad raising a child, but I, I would say it would be better to have a mother and father in the house uh, categorically. So where does that put uh, a same-sex couple? Again, dealing with not a church situation, but just as Christians think through this broader societal dilemma. I don't think it's ideal. I think it's less than ideal than obviously a biological mother and father, but also even a non-biological mother and father. Um, I do think that um, this child might be raised in a wonderful, healthy, loving family. Okay. We need, again, if you're a Christian, especially if you're a more, a more conservative Christian and you have kind of a lot of reservations about <laughs> a gay couple adopting a kid, you need to get out of your presuppositions that just because it's a same-sex couple, therefore it's not going to be loving, it's going to be anti-religious, and everything is going to be horrible for the child. Uh, there, there actually is a lot of sociological evidence that kids have fared well uh, having been raised by a same-sex couple. Um, it's a little bit tough with the sociological studies because we don't have a lot of longitudinal, longitudinal evidence because same-sex marriage has just been, you know, legal in all the states in just the last few years. Um, so I think it's a question that we need to kind of revisit in the next 5, 10, 15 years to see how kids have done, you know, being raised in a same-sex household and then, you know, uh, have now now gone on to the world and now they have a job, career, whatever, like is there Uh, I think we need to look at longitudinal evidence, but when it comes to things like, you know, depression rates or um, suicidality or success in school or general happiness, like it doesn't seem that being raised in a same-sex household necessarily or intrinsically hinders that kind of well-being. Now, again, that's not talking about religious values or even values of what marriage is and all these things. I mean, obviously, most children raised in a same-sex household are going to have a Probably a different view of what marriage is um, than the average kid raised in a heterosexual household. Although even that's not across the board. I mean, there's testimonies of of kids who were raised by a same-sex couple who love their parents, their mom and mom and dad or dad and dad, and uh, but still say – there's testimony in line. They, they kind of get criticized pretty aggressively. Um, but there are people saying, I was raised in this household and I love my parents. My mom and my mom and my dad and my dad. But I still wish I had a mom and a dad. Like, you know, I, I don't actually support same-sex marriage, even though I love my parents. Like, those stories do exist. And, and vice versa. Obviously, there's kid- adopted kids who are raised in a heterosexual household who grow up endorsing gay marriage as a thing. Probably the large majority of them would. So, all that to say, no easy answer. And I think we do have what could be a lesser of two evils uh, situation here. And maybe evils is is too strong of a word, but lesser of two ideals uh, where aging out of the system is really bad. um, And morally speaking, I don't think a same-sex couple, God has designed same-sex couples to uh, raise children. Um, But again, all adoptions are a concession to a less than ideal situation. Hope that helps. Um... I'm assuming it might have even muddled your thinking on the (laughs) question even more. But sometimes we need to think deeply and broadly and thoroughly um, and in an ongoing way through these difficult questions. So I hope that helps. Next question: Um, I have a question about Preston's last pod. One of Preston's last podcasts on tithing. And then he turns the question to me. Uh, you address mostly New Testament scripture on giving and its intentions, but I am curious to uh, see your take on the Old Testament practice of tithing so that Levites can maintain the temple. If you go to a local church today, you are generally having some sort of vocational pastor staff like the Levites in keeping uh, the church in order and focused. So how are they supposed to be receive compensation? If everybody took your advice, being able to choose where their tithe or giving went, you know, just give the homeless people, or give to other countries. Then how would any pastors or staff get paid? It seems a little haphazard to allow the average Christian, uh, the average Christ follower, to decide where their tithes are designated. And then you cite Acts uh, four when it says that they laid the, uh, they sold their possessions and laid the the profits at the apostles' feet, and the, the apostles redistributed the money to uh, people in need. Uh, and you say, I, I, I appreciate this next statement, by the way. I personally would much rather help an entire African village than pay for the toilet paper at our church. But I feel like giving is more of a dis- discipline to provide space in trusting God and how he sees fit to distribute the funds. So this, I really appreciate this question. In fact, I need to maybe reword or even rethink some things I said before. So um, in a previous podcast, um, and I've gotten this question before, like people ask... Do I have to tithe, give all my tithing, give all my extra giving or whatever to the church? Or can I give simply to other ministries, other needs? Can I give the missions? Can I just give to the poor? And I said, no, you absolutely can give to the poor, give the people in need. In fact, the dominant pattern of the New Testament is just that. Believers giving to other believers in need. Now, I did say, I'm 95% sure I said, if I didn't, I should have said that We also do have a pattern in the New Testament. It's not exclusive, but it is a general pattern that even though the overwhelming emphasis is giving to people in need, and specifically other believers in need, we do see a pattern of believers giving their money to other leaders, the apostles or to the Apostle Paul, um, in First Corinthians 16 and Second uh, uh, Corinthians 8 and 9 and Acts 4, like you said, we had we do see this pattern of believers giving their tithing, if you will, or their their you know giving extra funds to apostles or leaders, and it's those leaders that redistribute the funds to those in need. So I I I agree with what you're saying here. Um, that you you do see that pattern. But it still is the pattern, the overwhelming pattern. This isn't even really an argument. It's just an observation. The overwhelming pattern in the New Testament is that when believers give money to, quote unquote, the church, that that is redistributed to the physical needs of other believers. We also do see some evidence in Luke 8, 1 to 3, Paul in Philippians 4, I want to say, where believers are giving to release people for ministry. Uh, First Corinthians uh, nine and first, uh, the first like nine verses there. And then also um, uh, first Timothy five, I believe 17. I don't have a Bible open here. So Um, yeah, we do see uh, clear evidence that uh, those who are working hard at preaching and teaching, and also those who would be doing something that we would call like missionary activity um, can and should receive money to be released to do the work of ministry. So I I do want to agree with you here. And I, you know, I'm trying to think back to what I said in that previous episode. I, I absolutely think that those doing the work of ministry, especially teaching and preaching and leading congregations or communities of God's people should be released to do that, in fact, i 'm even a fan of paying pastors and missionaries generously, like there's enough stress in being a pastor and a missionary. you shouldn't have to stress about money in fact i I think frequent sabbaticals should be a thing in vacations, like sometimes pastors you just need to go sit on a beach for a few weeks and just Read and pray and study and and that actually feeds back into the ministry of discipleship and teaching and preaching and praying and loving on people and so on so i am a huge fan of releasing pastors for uh for the work of ministry and, and doing it and paying them well and not overworking them. I mean pastoral burnout is one of the greatest problems in the, the church today. Oh, wow. it is a problem in the church today. So, um, yeah, I, now now I'm kind of getting myself in mental knots because if uh, the advice I gave before of, no, you don't have to tie to the church, you can just give to the poor or whatever. I was saying that to an individual person who was asking the question, and I guess I didn't think about the ramifications of what if everybody <laughs> sort of took my advice. So, yes, I don't um, – if an individual believer had – poor people around them. They had people, you know, God has impressed upon their hearts to give to this mission agency or give to this poor uh, person over here or, you know, help fund this ministry overseas or whatever. Um, I I can't say, no, that's wrong. Um, But I would say that if an entire community of people at a local church did that and only that, then yes, that would probably not be helpful. You would not have pastors being able to be released from ministry. Now you do have certain ministry contexts and philosophies like Francis Chan's thing in San Francisco where there are no paid pastors. And so all their funds go and fund other things. And they are, if I can say, kind of flourishing. I mean, people are being discipled. Leaders are being trained up. People are coming to Christ right and left churches are being replanted, like all the, all the things that we would say are, wow, that's success. Like it's gone from one house church to about, I think over 20 now. Um, they're seeing just multitudes of people getting converted. Uh, the poor are being cared for again, leaders are being trained up. So they've been able to do that without actually paying any pastor or leader, like hundred percent of the money goes towards people in need or release or releasing, um, Uh, I think they do send missionaries. Uh, They do do fund missionaries, but they don't fund local pastors. So, And look, I'm not saying that is the way to do it, the only way to do it. I'm just saying it it is a way, and it has seen in some contexts to be a really successful way. But I'm actually, as much as I appreciate that model um, and can't really argue against it, I don't think that's the only way. And in fact, I would probably lean towards, I think it's probably better to, make sure you're releasing pastors for ministry and paying them and paying them well. So all that to say, I do think local churches should, uh, that, that a, a good percentage of the money coming in should be, um, should be releasing pastors and missionaries for money. My one concern is when tons of money, although, you know, an overwhelming percentage of the church budget gets sucked up on operational expenses that aren't directly contributing to discipleship or evangelism um, or missions or whatever. Like I, you know, when I see, and it's, I'm just making this up, but when I see, you know, 15% of the budget going towards, you know, pastoral salaries and 2% going to benevolence, you know, helping out people in need and 5% given the missions or whatever, I'm like, Ooh, I just want to turn all that on its head. And say no. Let's primarily uh, help out the poor. Let's also release pastors and missions and, and people for for missions. Let's let's you know pay them so they can do the work of God. Um, and yeah, it's not wrong to you know have a building. It's not wrong to even have a carpet in the building. But some I, as you get down into the operational expenses, these become just less and less exciting for me, or less and less necessary for discipleship. Um, So, yeah, again, not anti building, not anti toilet paper, not anti carpet, but goodness, I just don't see any New Testament evidence that all of our quote unquote giving, our generosity, should be sucked up by the operational expenses that we think we need to pull off a church service every Sunday. So, that was my main concern with that previous question. Um. Okay. What is the role of the government? Um, I'm kind of summarizing the question here. Why did God implement governments, and what should be the scope of their jurisdiction? And what does that mean for us and our involvement in the government? Okay. Quick answer. Uh, in the Old Testament, you have a combination of what we would call it, like church and state. Now, I say church loosely. I mean, it's you know the Israelite nation. Um. The the but the people of God and the state were kind of one. Like the Old Testament gives direction both for, you know, uh, the priesthood and and, uh, temple service, but it also gives direction for how to run a society. So it has, you know, laws on taking care of the poor and uh, laws that have to do with redistributing land, which in an agrarian culture is a very, you know, (laughs) political or societal thing to say. Um, So in the Old Testament, you have, you know, kind of a... The government was the people of God and the people of God were the government. In the New Testament, it switches. Now in the New Testament, you see a stark contrast between the church and the state. In fact, the church is often viewed as something, you know, over here. And then you have the state over there, like a stark contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Rome. Um. You do have people in the kingdom of Rome getting saved out of that kingdom and joining the kingdom of God. And there is some fuzziness about what their continual vocation will look like. But overall, the values of the state clash with the values of um, the church. So the government is all in the New Testament. It's viewed as a different kingdom, a different society, a different way of ruling the world. And the values of the church are described as being very different from the government. However, we are to pay taxes. We aren't to revolt and overthrow the government. Uh, we are to obey the laws of the government in as much as they don't call us to violate uh, the law of God. Um, God can and does work through the government to reward the good and punish the punished evildoers. This is the classic text is Romans 13, 1 to 7. But this doesn't mean that God celebrates or even like creates or, is the author of the government uh, he simply uses and works through the governments that have already set themselves up now in a in a in a general sovereign way, of course, God raises up kingdoms and crushes kingdoms or whatever, but I think that's just in a really general way of just saying that that God is sovereign over all um, yeah, so I you know you see a lot of clash between God and secular governments, even in the Old Testament, the prophets were constantly. You know, relaying God's word of rebuke and castigation toward Assyria and Babylon and Persia and other rulers who are trying to rule the world under their own power rather than submitting their rulership to God. So at the end of the day, I think we should respect the government, honor the government, pray for the government, whatever. But I do think it's healthier for Christians to maintain a strong separation between church and state. I don't think it's wrong for a Christian to work for the government. <laughs> um, plenty of Christians do, and they don't violate their convictions by doing so. Um, but I, I do think that um, in, in certain vocations that are, you know, for the government, I think it might be tough for Christians to live out a holistic Christian way of living while working for the government. But that's true in a lot of other vocations too. I mean, it's, it's tough to be a Christian working for um working in you know uh working in babylon like that's just there's gonna be you're gonna be faced with situations where you're gonna have to choose between um righteousness which may get you fired versus you know keeping your job which may force you to violate your convictions as a christian so i think it'd be tough to be a christian in the guy go- in, in certain government vocations but doesn't mean it's impossible all right uh, next question um this person was at an event that I did in Canton, uh, Michigan. Uh, my question is: Why would a gay man or woman continue to identify themselves as gay when we wouldn't expect anyone with a besetting sin to identify themselves by that sin, regardless of how long it has not, uh, how long it has not beset them? I'm asking this out of First Corinthians six nine to eleven. I think that we have a new identity in Christ once we're saved, regardless. Uh, from what we are saved from. Did I miss something, this person says? So thank you for your question. Um, uh, Yeah, so 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11 talks about people who were engaging in illicit, immoral sexual activity, and then they got saved out of that, and now they have, in a sense, a new identity in Christ. But notice that identity is of the people who were formerly walking in sin in 1 Corinthians 6, that identity was not simply being gay or simply being same-sex attracted versus opposite sex attracted. Rather, they were engaging in ongoing, unrepentant, you know, lives of sexual immorality, whether they're gay or straight. In fact, most people that are being condemned in 1 Corinthians 6 or Um, most of them would be considered would be what we would consider straight people. I mean, most people having gay sex in the first century were probably straight and that's a whole nother conversation, but the categories of of gay and straight are just those categories uh, didn't really exist in the first century, even though gay people and straight people did exist. Does that make sense? They just didn't, we didn't start labeling ourselves or identifying ourselves by our sexual orientation until the mid 19th century. Um so th- so those ca- it's hard to project the modern day category of gay meaning just simply same sex attracted onto certain verses in the Bible that are explicitly talking about sexual activity sexual behavior plenty of gay people aren't having gay sex okay so um should so regardless should a gay man or woman continue to identify as gay um this is a big debate and I've I've written on this quite a bit I would point you to the work of Wesley Hill. If you Google Wesley Hill um, uh, and, I don't know, just also put in, like, identify as gay or something like that, then um, you'll probably you'll come across probably several articles. And, and Wes has some great, great thoughts on this whole thing. It, it all depends on what you mean by identify. Like, should somebody identify as gay as their primary identity above all others? This is the throne upon which I sit? Well, no. Well, I don't think, I would say the same thing for straight people or even married people. Like, I don't think your marriage is your primary identity, even though marriage is a great thing. Um, and maybe you have a wonderful marriage. But if you said, hi, my name's John and I'm married. Well, gosh, I think you're maybe are idolizing something that may be good, but shouldn't be your primary identity. So um, so I don't think anything should be a primary identity apart from we are in Christ uh, and we are also human and we are male or female. Like these are primary identities um, that we see in Scripture, uh, in Genesis 1 and so on. But we do have many other sub-identities that aren't so much identifying the core of our existence, but simply describing aspects of how we are. Not not necessarily who we are, but how we are. Um, the fact that I am attracted to the opposite sex is a thing, and it's a kind of a big part of my life. It Causes all kinds of temptation, almost every day that I have to battle, and it um, shapes how I even feel when I walk into a room full of men and women. Like it's it's hard it's hard to separate my straightness from my existence. And so it's a big part of my life. And same thing for somebody who is gay. So for them to say yes, I am gay doesn't mean that they are. First of all, it doesn't mean that they're having tons of gay sex. The word gay doesn't mean that. Um, it also doesn't mean that they're using that term gay as a primary identity, even though they use the sentence, I am gay. So I am okay with people saying I am a gay Christian, um, as long as they don't mean it to mean, you know, this is my primary identity above all others. But again, I don't think I've met a gay Christian who would say that. Um, the word gay is simply a description, a synonym of their uh, their attraction, they are attracted to the same sex and not the opposite sex. So, the biggest question again, when yeah, biggest thing to consider when you raise this question is, what do you mean by gay? What does what do other people mean by gay when they use the term, uh, gay? All right. Next question. I recently read your article uh, entitled "Scripture Ethics and the Possibility of Same-Sex Relationships." You seem to have a very high view of sexuality in marriage, and I sincerely appreciate that. I've never heard that homosexuality is. Wrong, not in and of itself, but because it falls short of God's design for marriage. I was wondering uh, if there are some words you could share with me about how pornography rails in the same boat. I've never heard that analogy, rails in the same boat, but I I get what you're saying. Um, Yes, it's wrong, but there's a deep deep truth of God's that we're missing out on because of it. If you don't, that's fine, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Okay, so uh, some... uh, Um, I'm a little unclear on what the question is, but I I think I get it. I think I get it. Um, just to be clear, I I don't, uh, while I would say that same sex, sexual relationships are, are wrong because they are non, they they can't be defined as a marriage. Um, I, I would, I don't think that's the only reason why, uh, I would say same sex relationships are wrong There's, there's various reasons in scripture why they would be wrong, but just to clarify, um yeah your your summary of of what I said uh I think um yeah, just want to clarify or fill that out a little more as far as pornography, i mean my goodness yeah i uh where do I start so I did a podcast a few weeks ago with Noah Philippiak on pornography, so I would point my questioner here back to that podcast, and we talked the whole uh the whole uh podcast was on pornography, so yes, I think it's absolutely. Uh, dangerous on so many levels. It's sin. It's destructive. It's it's It will ruin your life, uh, especially not just porn use, but porn addiction will crush you. Um, and it will create all kinds of destructive things in society, especially as pornography, from what I'm told, uh, keeps getting more and more aggressive and violent. And once you, and I think this is the way addictions work, right? Once you um, become used to whatever thing you're addicted to, you want more and more and, and more. It just, it keeps getting deeper and darker and darker and deeper. And so, um, I, yeah, por- pornography is not going to do anything good for society and nothing good for your life. And it's going to absolutely destroy you if you don't get out of the addiction. So, uh, yeah, I don't know what else to say. I mean, I, I don't, uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's an, I think pornography is an absolute, it is an epidemic in the church today. Um, and society today, and yeah, I mean, there's so much more I could say, but I would point you to that uh, previous podcast um, about uh, that we talked about uh, pornography. And last question: What is the way forward for a believer in 2018 uh, in the highly subjective? Oh, <laughs> he says highly subjective tirade alert. Okay, so this is him. He's going to go off on something here. What's the way forward for a believer in 2018? I guess I could say 2019. This question came in a while ago. Uh, It seems to me that the church seems more and more divided than ever for a millennial in 2018. You are either a liturgist-loving progressive quickly deconstructing your faith or a John Piper-toting conservative just clinging to the old ways. (laughs) So you all know who John Piper is. And if you don't know who the liturgists are, uh, you need to. They're one of the most popular Christian podcasts. It's um, it's run by, um, hosted by Mike McCarg, or aka Science Mike, and um, oh gosh, I'm blanking on his name. The Christian musician. Um, shoot. Anyway, just look it up, liturgist, and you'll see who the other guy is. And yeah, it's a very, for lack of better terms, very progressive, very you know liberal Christian-ish podcast. I mean, I, I don't even know if they would want to say it's a Christian podcast. They are both confessing Christians. Um, but yeah, that is the would be the exact opposite of like a, a you know, moderate or even uh, evangelical brand of Christianity. Um, and then, yeah, on the other side, you have John Piper. As already alluded to in my earlier comment, I'm surrounded in my life by the former, by uh, the liturgist, loving progressives. And I don't love it. I can't put my finger on one specific thing, but the whole new progressivism just doesn't sit well with my soul. Uh, I don't want to align myself one way or another, and I see abuses on both sides, but I'm just not really sure what the way forward is for people like me. I've tried to surround myself with more third-way speakers like yourself, like me, uh, John Mark Comer, N.T. Wright, Dallas Willard, Tim Keller, Mark Sayers, etc., who I think embrace a healthy balance of challenge, not because the culture demands it, but because... Uh, remaining faithful to Jesus, but it just feels a little lonely out here when everyone around you is just jumping on the deconstruction train, losing their faith, or just sitting comfortable with no challenge at all. Is there a third way forward? How can a moderate like myself thrive in the coming years? Okay. Oh my goodness. Um, So much to say about this. I, I, let me begin by saying you you listed a lot of great names here. John Mark Comer, N.T. Wright, Dallas Willard, Tim Keller, so on, so on and so forth. Uh, There's so many more. There's... Uh, there are so many helpful, moderate voices in Christianity who are holding true to Scripture, who uphold the authority of the Bible, who love Jesus, believe in the radical call of the gospel, and yet aren't politically tribal, aren't unwilling to listen to others, who are humble and gracious in how they approach their faith and are willing to be wrong and maybe even be more socially progressive or at least socially moderate, who don't believe that Jesus was a Republican, um, who might be pro-immigration and um, anti-militarism, and yet very (laughs) pro-Bible, pro-Jesus. There's so many people out there who would be um, in this camp i mean just a few just as 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 i was reading this question you know several names came to mind like like scott sauls who's been on this podcast a couple of times john tyson pastor in new york city bj thompson's been on a couple of times derwin gray who's been on karen swallow prior at liberty university you know here are people who are just committed to scripture who would be very evangelical in their faith um and yet you know are not on the far left or far right or super progressive or super conservative. Like they are just good, solid, uh, thinkers. Uh, Are there like charismatic leaders that I'm thinking of like Banning and or Lisa Bevere or Andrew Wilson who don't, you know, aren't, you know, just, they're not like health and wealth preachers, but they're, you know, very charismatic, but they're also very biblical and very, uh, anti abuses in the charismatic church. Um, and, and they're, Um, politically they would probably say, you know, um, let's focus on Jesus and not politics and let's not be, let's not get off the rails of progressivism uh, or just get stuck into banal conservatism. Even other secular figures. This is what actually gives me a lot of encouragement, challenge, and hope. I mean, you have a lot of secular voices that are growing tremendously in their platform audience influence. People like Joe Rogan, well, you know, he runs the most, the most, or Usually it's top five, if not sometimes it's top one podcasts in the country. Who I mean, Joe Rogan is a total. He's not a religious at all. Um, I love his podcast, but just uh, you know, word of warning: it is very explicit. Very explicit. (laughs) Um, He has a lot of liberal values, but he also um, would not be at all okay with some of the radical ideology of progressive progressivism or. People that are sort of against free speech, you know, the whole, you know, free speech is hate speech kind of mantra. Um, people like Dave Rubin, um, atheist, married gay man who is a very moderate voice, uh, has liberal values, but again, gets along great with conservatives because he loves to listen and learn. And uh, other, you know, so, uh, psychologists like Stephen Pinker, Jonathan Haidt, even Jordan, Jordan Peterson – who you know, is a confessing Christian, not a particularly orthodox one, but I mean, he, he's attracted a huge following because people are tired of the polarizing voices on both sides, and uh, yeah, all these thinkers, on one way or level, uh, one way or another, are kind of uh, cutting through the polarizing options of this kind of radical left or progressive ideology or radical right conservatism. Um, others in in the field of gender and sexuality—that it's my field—secular thinkers like Deborah So, Ken Zucker, Ray Blanchard, and and, and many others um, are very liberal, very non-Christian, and yet are I would see as you know sane, uh, thoughtful, moderate voices that seem to upset people on both extremes. So yes, of course, the polarizing voices will always have an audience. Trump will always have a following. Hillary or the next Hillary will always have a following. Um, we do live in polarizing times, but there is a hungry, a starving, massive, moderate group of Christians who are just as tired and fed up of the polarizing voices, the the radical progressivism and the staunch conservatism. Look, I mean, I should I say this? I, I think the radical left will cannibalize itself it's just it's so inconsistent and morally bankrupt and um the virtue signaling the pharisaism the new kind of it's like a the radical left is like a new fundamentalism where they have all these inconsistencies and problems and sins that they just ignore and then they point their bony finger at all the other people out there who are doing all these bad things and it's like come on like that's just you can't and the second, if you're part of the radical left and you, you step your little toe outside of that tribe, then boom, you're no longer with us. You know, you're either fully on board or you're not on board at all. Um, and the radical right is not much better. <laughs> I think the radical left will cannibalize itself. I think the radical right will die off in 10 years. Of course, there will always be polarizing voices. They, I, I say that tongue in cheek a little bit. I mean, there are, they will always be there. But I think there is actually given the post-Trump polarizing culture we live in. I think some really fruitful, promising spaces are being created for the hungry, moderate voices um, or for the moderate voices to move forward and start speaking to and drawing out the hungry, silent majority um, that is looking for uh, a more uh, moderate approach. When I say moderate, I don't mean like vanilla or banal, but um, moderate in the sense that um, we're not tribal we are not either left or right. We are Jesus followers who critique both the left and the right. We are not Republican or Democrat. We are kingdom Jesus followers um, who are focused more on the kingdom of God than the kingdom of man, who are not getting you know, stuck in the politics of the day, the polarizing politics, who call out racism against people of color and call out racism against white people um, who, you know, believe that there are societal structures of evil and also believe that people sometimes don't make it in society because they made bad decisions and they need to stop making bad decisions. <laughs> okay, so like, uh, you know, um, people on the far right will say, you know, if if you don't make it in society, then it's all because of you and your choices and anybody can make it if they really just work hard. Um, part, yeah, I, I agree with that, kind of. And then people on the left are going to say, no, it's all, you know, we have structural evil. And if you're in a position of power, it's because you stepped on somebody who isn't in a position of power. And if you're a, you know, white straight male, then you have, you know, um, you, know you, you know, you you start off life on the five yard line ready to score a touchdown. Where if you're not a white straight male, you start off, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, on the other side of the field and everything's stacked against you and it's all society, societal evil and And, you know, moral choices have nothing to do with it. And it's like, well, that's, there's some truth there too, but there's also a lot of problems with that. Could could it not be both? That there are structural um, evils and oppressions and uh, inequalities. And then also, again, people sometimes, oftentimes don't make it in life because they made bad choices. So individual behavior and also structural evil, both are. True, and we need to listen to both um, aspects of society and so on and so forth. So, I'm getting lost in the weeds here. I think you get the point. There is a hungry middle and an a, and a overwhelming number of really helpful, thoughtful, gracious, humble voices that are non tribal that are going to lead the way in 2019 and beyond. Thanks for listening to Theology in a Raw. Again, if you want to support the show, it's patreon.com forward slash. Theology in the Raw, Patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Ra. We will see you next time on the show.